Amen. Amen. Can you hear me? Praise the Lord. Well, meet me in the Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we want to continue to lift uh, the Fitzpatricks in our prayers for the loss of their son, Danny, and for Bruna and their little one. We also want to continue to pray for our dear brother, Pastor Tim Shuri. Um, we're just hoping for the best for our brother. Amen. And we're praying for him consistently. Genesis chapter 2. And I'll just be reading two verses. Verse number 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I want to preach on the topic, the creation of Eden, a place for the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious promises, Lord. Would you move through me in such a way, Lord God, that your people will hear your words and not mine? May you edify your people and glorify your name in the preaching of your word. May Jesus Christ be manifested in our midst. May your name be exalted. We pray in the mighty and wonderful name of Christ. And all the people of God say amen. Have you ever felt like you were going in circles? Do you ever feel lost or that you have lost your way when it comes to God's word? Do you know what your fixed point in life is? Studies have shown that if you have blindfolded a man and asked him to walk in a straight line, he would start out well, but soon began to turn one way or another, looping around in ever-increasing circles. It is a phenomenon that has been demonstrated over and over again that without a fixed reference point, we cannot keep a straight line. And the strange thing about this is, we feel like we're actually walking in a straight line. But we began to loop and curve erratically without ever knowing it. If you don't believe me, try it. Just blindfold yourself and start walking. And ask somebody to see if you're still walking in a straight line. We need a fixed point to walk in a straight line. Robert Coleridge, a research expert, observes that without a corrective, our insides take over and something inside us won't stay straight. I wonder what that is. God gave Adam a place of worship. We heard about that preach a few weeks ago. He also gave 
Adam a position of work to tend the garden and to keep it. But in our text today, he gave Adam his word, a fixed point of reference. God's word to Adam was an anchor to his soul. God gives him a fixed point to keep him straight. I wish I had time, but it's hot in here, so I'm going to keep moving. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So I want us to narrow our focus in on this particular verse 16, and even more so with this one phrase, God commanded the man. A few traits about God becomes very apparent when you study this particular verse. One, God is a speaking God. If you have your notes with you and you can fill it in, God is a speaking God. God is not silent and has never been and never will be silent. In fact, the whole chapter in the first chapter reveals that God speaking everything into existence. It was A.W. Tozer that said, it is a notion to believe that a silent God suddenly began to speak in a book and when he had finished, lapsed back into silence forever. No. God who has spoken creation into being spoke the world into being way before his written word. That's why the Hebrew writer tells us, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. In fact, Tozer goes on to say that the facts are that God is not silent and has never been silent. It is the nature of God to speak. The second person of the Trinity is called the word, the logos in Greek. The Bible is inevitably the outcome of God's continuous speech. It is the infallible declaration of his mind for us put in familiar human words. And yet God has spoken through his written word and God continues to speak through his written word, even when your Bible is closed. Amen? Not only has God spoken, he's a speaking God, but your other point there in your handout, God spoke directly to Adam. Now, I know that sounds basic. After forming the apex of his creation, man, in his image, God placed him in the garden and then he speaks to him one-on-one. Imagine hearing the audible voice of God. That was Adam. Because God is not some impersonal force or abstract deity far away that cannot be reached. Yes, he is transcendent above all the works of his hands. And yet he he is real with personality and communes with us the way he did with Adam. In fact... God is closer to us than our very own skin. Imagine that. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat 
of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God spoke directly to him as you would speak to your friend or your spouse or your children or the person sitting next to you. It was very clear. Many in Scripture heard the voice of God, God speaking directly to them, whether it was Noah building the ark for the coming flood, or Abraham leaving his homeland for the promised land, or Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb, or Elijah running for his dear life, or Jonah who tried to bail out on his mission to reach the lost. God spoke to each of these individuals directly and clearly. Notice that God gives Adam permission, but he also gives him prohibition. So if you want to put that in your notes, that's what that word is. He gives him permission first, but then he also gives him a prohibition. He gives them permission to enjoy all the benefits of paradise. Nothing is off limits. All the gold and onyx, all the fruits and vegetables, those delicious strawberries and peaches, apples, all of that belongs to you. Except this one thing. This one tree is off limits. You must not eat of it. The Bible says he commanded the man, and he gave him a prohibition. You see, only God has the prerogative to know truly what is good and what is bad for life. So the knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge that is exclusive to God alone. This clearly is off limits for Adam and Eve, and not up for grabs. And at this point in the narrative, Adam only knows God intimately, not good and evil. Or not God and evil. He knows only God. But I want us also to note that there is nothing magical about this tree. It is simply representative of the knowledge and power that is appropriate to God only. But what we will soon see in the next chapter, that man does not abide by this command. In fact, what man does to this divine prerogative when he is tempted is he goes for a power grab and sought to dethrone God and enthrone himself in God's place. That's what that was. Because he disobeyed God. And we're not going to talk about that now, but we're going to learn about that in a couple weeks. You see, there's a tendency for us to look at this prohibition, this single prohibition, as a major bummer. Here is Adam in the midst of paradise. And his freedom is already restricted. Wow. Some people might think, come on, man. You serious? Yet, could you understand why traffic laws and traffic signals exist on busy intersections? Do you know why mom and dad told you not to touch the hot stove as a child? 
or not to drive the car until you have your license. Later we understand that (laughs) mom said no jumping on the bed. You know what happens when you jump on the bed. My kids are always jumping on the bed. Traffic signs, stoplights, warning signs are, are not to hamper our freedom, but to enhance it. To help us maximize our freedom without major or minor accidents. Can I get an amen? And yet, we got to be careful of the rules, right? Because Christianity is not a rule book religion. The Bible is not primarily a list of do's and don'ts. The Bible is not a book of minute laws. The Bible is the living book of God pointing to his son, Jesus Christ. But why would he do that to Adam? Why put that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, in the midst of the garden? Adam was not in the matrix. God was not playing games with him, offering him the red pill or the blue pill. No, Adam was tested for sure, but this was a test of love, not temptation. You see, there are two trees at the center of this beautiful garden. There's the tree of life, which brings healing and wholeness and eternal life and blessings. And yet, interestingly, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has no parallel in ancient Near Eastern literature. This tree was not magical, but it seemed to offer humans a way to be independent from their creator God, or at least promise that they might gain knowledge and insight that was equal to or in competition with their creator God. Parenthetically, this raises some questions for me. Why would an all-powerful, all-loving God allow there to be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the first place? What's that all about? Didn't God create that tree? Since God is all-powerful, he could have prevented it, right? And since he is all-loving, it would make sense that he would have prevented such a tree. However... The presence of those two trees was essentially an act of God's love. God allowed it for two reasons. We can infer from this text. One, God allowed the existence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to show man that he is not an autonomous creature. In other words, you are not independent of God. Adam belongs to God and is held accountable to his creator. God is your creator. You did not make yourself. In fact, everything about this text screams, Adam, you are not a self-made Adam. You are not a self-made man, contrary to what the world is teaching in pop psychology and popular culture. You're not a self-made man. And after God makes man from the dust of the ground, he makes him. He breathes his breath of life into him, and he becomes a living soul. Then God took the man 
and place him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. That sure sounds like Adam belongs to God, to me. And yet, too, he allowed such a tree to test the limits of man's love for God. In other words, will you love me in return by obeying my commands, Adam? You see, God did this because he is kind and gentle and patient and does not want to strong arm the relationship with mankind. Somebody say amen to that one. In other words, he has given Adam a choice. An atheist writes a letter to Billy Graham, and I quote, Dear Dr. Graham, I don't believe in a Christian God. And the reason is because I don't think God is perfect. If he were perfect, he wouldn't have made Adam and Eve so they can sin, would he? But he made them so they can sin. So he must not be perfect, sign CT. Billy Graham responds and writes back and says this, the Bible is clear. God is perfect and therefore we can trust him even for our eternal salvation. He goes on to say that the Bible says, as for God, his way is perfect, and the word of the Lord is flawless, Psalm 18, verse 30. Not only is God perfect in all he does, he is also perfect in all he is. And eventually, Graham goes on to say, why did God make them so that they could sin and do wrong. Because God is sovereign, right? The reason is because he didn't want them to become puppets or robots. Somebody say amen. God made them, Adam and Eve, with a free will, for only then they could freely choose to love him. Yet, it was a risk on God's part. And if he hadn't taken it, Adam and Eve, you and I, would be robots, not humans. God could have made us into robots and forced the love. Imagine that on the day of your wedding. That you're forced to say, I do. I do. I love you for the rest of my life. No choice. No, your wife or your husband did not strong arm you down the aisle. Hopefully, they didn't do that. By giving mankind these options, God was in essence saying, I have created you in my image and have given you access to all of this by permission. You reflect me. Adam, now will you obey me? Because I'm not going to force you. God made mankind as a free agent with a moral capacity to choose right from wrong. God so loved the mankind that he actually created him with the will to choose him or reject him. That's a high-risk proposal. And even now, guess what? You have the choice right now in your relationship with God. You have a choice. You have a choice. Look at your neighbor and say, you have a choice. <laughs> you really do. 
you didn't wake up this morning as a robot. Oh, Lord, I pray now. Next, I read my Bible. Next, I go to a church. Next, I will be baptized. Next, I will partake of communion. No. Not automation, but relationship. That's why you weren't forced to come here to be in heat. Because you love God. You made a choice to be here. Some people say, you know what, I'm out of here. No air conditioner in the church, no red carpet. Come on. You have a choice. This command was not a killjoy command. No, it was a good, loving command. His commandments are not burdensome. This command was a guardrail to protect their relationship. It was Kevin DeYoung in his book, Taking God at His Word. I encourage you to read that book. He said that God does not lay down arbitrary rules. He does not give orders so that we might be restricted and miserable. He never requires what is impure or unloving or unwise. His demands are always noble, always what is just, always what is righteous. If you want that quote, it's in your handout. In a way, God was giving man orientation one-on-one on a single command. Would he succeed or would he fail? We're going to find out in a couple weeks from now. Well, we already know because we are all impacted by Adam's decision. This one imperative that God gave to man sets the tone and a tenor for how God will interact with his people throughout biblical history. It sets a precedent and a pattern of God speaking directly to his people. God was testing Adam and Eve and would subsequently test Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 with the sacrifice of his son Isaac or Israel in the wilderness for their lack of faith in Exodus 15. Then later he rains down bread from heaven for Israel to test her again in chapter 16. Then God gave his people the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of Exodus. And in verse 18 he says, Now all the people saw the thunder and the flash of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the Mountains that was actually engulfed in smoke. And the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, Amen. You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us. What? Lest we die. Moses said to the people, Here's the key point. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Oh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, the whole commandment that I command you today, shall, you shall be careful to do. 
that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember that the whole way the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might, what, humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the living God. Every test was a test of whether or not God's people will be obedient to God's voice. And guess what? God keeps his promises, doesn't he? He's a promise keeper. For the good things and even for consequences when we disobey. The verdict for disobeying God, his command here, is the death penalty. Adam was not going to be committing some small sin. This was going to be committing cosmic treason usurping the authority of God, dethroning God and enthroning himself. That is the gravity of human sin. We will learn about in a couple weeks from now. He says this, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in the Hebrew, it means die and you will continue to die. So that makes a lot of sense. Because on that day, we didn't see a physical death. I'm not, not going to preach that. Let me get, move on. Most Christians are familiar with the attributes of God. And at some point and at some level, we've all studied God because guess what? We're all in some way theologians. We study God's holiness, his justice, his omniscience, his sovereignty, his goodness, his mercy. But can we name and explain the attributes of Scripture which oozes from God? Traditionally, the Protestant theologians have highlighted four essential characteristics of Scripture. Here's an acronym that we call SCAN. So I want you to scan the whole counsel of God as we zero in on God's word to mankind. That word that's in your handout, SCAN, is an acronym that stands for the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the necessity of Scripture. So why do we need the sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity of Scripture? Well, thank you for asking. Because in our world's culture today, truth is relative. You speak your truth, I speak mine. There is no absolute objective truth outside of me. If I don't like your truth, I can easily dismiss your truth or cancel you out. Or even worse, I can block you from my social media page or even put you on full blast. This is the nature of popular culture in today's world. Very anti-biblical. So that's why we need to look at the sufficiency of Scripture. When God told Adam to abstain from the forbidden fruit, he assumed that Adam already knew some things. He had general knowledge, sufficient to apply the command to the trees 
so that he can see and touch. God didn't need to tell Adam what a tree was or how to distinguish fruit from the leaves or what it meant to eat. These things were natural knowledge. God had given Adam everything he needed to be obedient to that single command. God didn't need to break it down any, any further. This is what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. For Adam, the word of God in that moment became the standard of living. And if we, he obeyed it, not only would it protect him from death, but would allow him to experience the full benefits of the tree of life. To affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything. But it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. And no, it does not have exhaustive information about every subject, but in every subject in which it speaks, it says only what is true. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture invites us to open our Bibles and hear God's voice. So that as we are reading it, we find that the Scriptures are actually reading us. Moses reassures Israel that the Word of God can be understood and obeyed, not perfectly or meritoriously for our salvation, but in the way that pleases God who has already saved them. I'll never forget, I came across a little book when I was a new believer, New Testament with the Psalms and Proverbs. This is actually a Gideon Bible. It's one of my first Bibles. And I kept it as an 18-year-old. My, my daughter Hannah loves playing with this Bible. I mean, if I ever want to get her to do what I need her to do, I just wave this little Bible. She loves playing with it. But I don't want her to tear the pages out of it because it's precious to me. But when I first opened up this Bible, I was profoundly impacted by the statement in this little Bible, which shaped my whole thinking about the value of God's Word. And it reads, the Bible, this book reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy, for it contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It is a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, and the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too heaven is open. The gates of hell disclose Christ is its grand subject and our good is its design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth and a paradise of glory and a river of pleasure. It is given you and life will be open at the judgment and will be remembered forevermore. It involves the highest responsibility, will regard the greatest labor or reward the greatest labor and condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents, as we know in Revelation chapter 22. All Scripture is sufficient. Amen. Now let's look at the clarity of Scripture. 
The saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught in Scripture and can be understood by all who have ears to hear it. We don't need an official magisterium to tell us what the Bible means. God was very clear with Adam. You eat this fruit and you will surely die. There is nothing vague about that promise. It's a daily punishment for failure to disobey God. And yes, there are some passages in the Scripture that may be difficult to understand. But overall, the Word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. The psalmist says the Word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. More to be desired than there are than gold, even fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Elsewhere, Moses records for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into the heavens and bring it down to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? No. But the word is very near you and is on your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And Moses is not talking about law keeping as just self-justification. He is speaking to a people already saved from Egypt, already delivered from any law-keeping. Scripture then is clear enough to make us responsible to carry out its duties. The clarity of Scripture. Thirdly, let's look at the authority of Scripture. The last word always goes to the Word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, human experience, or of the church council to take precedence over Scripture. When God speaks, His Word carries authority. When God commands, He expects us to obey. That's the authority of Scripture. Mankind cannot make this up. God is the author of this book. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, it says, Knowing First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes through anyone's private interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The phrase carried along is a word picture of a ship that's being powered along by beneath the, 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 uh, the wind of the sails. The biblical writers, in other words, were guided to record exactly what, th- what God wanted them to re- produce in their own individual personalities. God didn't eradicate their personalities when recording Scripture. In our statement of faith, it says, Scripture alone is the supreme and final authority in a rule of faith in life. The Scriptures must not be added to or taken away from All the creeds and confessions, teachings, and prophecies are to be tested by the final authority of God's Word. It was B.B. Warfield that said it this way, the Bible is the Word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. 
Have you ever saw Adam and Eve? They didn't have any way of testing what God had told them about the forbidden fruit. No way to test it. They couldn't work out an experiment to show them whether God was rightly predicting the effects of this fruit. They simply took God at his word. But later we know that Satan cast major doubt on the validity of God's word and tempted Adam and Eve to claim autonomy and themselves as the highest authority. When we talk about the authority of God's word, it was R.C. Sproul that said it well. It is fashionable in certain academic circles to exercise scholarly criticism of the Bible. And in so doing, scholars place themselves above the Bible and seek to correct it. And if indeed the Bible is the word of God, nothing could be more arrogant. It is God who corrects us, not we correct him. We don't stand over God. He stands over us and we stand under him. You see, men do not reject, people do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, right? But it contradicts them. So that's why they stay out of it. The authority of Scripture. Let me give you the last one. The necessity of Scripture. You see, general revelation is, as revealed in nature, is not enough to actually save us. You can look out there and tell and prove that God exists by feeling the warm heat of the sun. You can look up and see the beautiful works of God's creation in nature, but it's not enough to actually save you. We cannot know God savingly by means of personal experience or human reason. We need God's word to tell us how to live, who is Christ, and how to be saved. The purpose of Scripture is ultimately not to make you smarter, to make you relevant, or to make you rich, or to, make, to help you get a job, or to get married, or to take all their problems away, or to tell you where to, where to live. No. The aim of Scripture is that you might be wise enough to put your faith in Christ and be saved. Paul told Timothy, as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that Scripture is, that's it? That's all it's good for? Absolutely not. Because Paul makes it very clear in the next couple verses, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Holy Scriptures tell us, this is what A.W. Tozer says, it tells us what we can never learn any other way. They tell us who we are and what we are, how we got here, and why we are here, and what's required of us while we remain here. The Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. 
We're born again by the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We grow up into our salvation through craving the holy scriptures. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan to cast the stones into bread, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. To neglect the regular reading of God's word is as detrimental to the health of the souls as the neglect of physical food is detrimental to the neglect of your, our, our bodies. You can't go a whole entire week without eating. So why would you do it without the word of God? That's what God is saying to me. I need to pick up this word daily. Why? Because the word of God is living. And I once heard that somebody said that the hard truth is only those who only sample the Bible never acquire a taste for it. Ooh, that hurts. But the word of God is living, active, sharper than the double-edged sword, piercing or penetrating the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrows. It judges the thoughts and intentions of one's heart. I have read this by Thomas Watson. He says, I have read many books, but the Bible reads me. Leave not off reading the Bible till you find your hearts warm. Let it not only inform you, but let it inflame you. The Bible is alive, Martin Luther says. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. According to Pew Research Center, 90% of all Americans own a cell phone. 76 or 67% of cell phone owners find themselves checking their phones for messages, alerts, and calls, even when they don't notice their phone ringing or vibrating. Just keep on checking it constantly. You ever feel that way? I've done that. 44% of cell phone owners have slept with their phones next to them, next to their bed, because they wanted to make sure they didn't miss any calls or text messages or updates during the night. You ever done that? I know I have. 29% of all cell phone owners describe their cell phones as something they just can't imagine living life without. Raise your hand if you've been, if that's you. I'm raising my hands. Recent statistics also show that 70% of cell phone owners and 86% of smartphone owners have used their phones in one way or another in the following ways in the past 30 days. Coordinating a meeting or a get-together, 41%. Solving an unexpected problem that they or someone else had to encounter, 35%. Decide whether or not to visit a business or such, or such as a restaurant, 30%. Find information to help settle an argument that they're having, 27%. Look up a score of a sporting event, 23%. Get up-to-date minute traffic and public transit information for the fastest route to get somewhere, 20%. To help get help in the emergency situation, 19%. In other words, all this cell phone equates to is the average person checking their phones 150 times per day. Wow. According to the Klein Perkins Calford Internet Trends report. You see, a recent social media buzz point, the author is unknown, raises very probing question. What if... We treated our Bibles the way we treat our cell phones. Ooh, let that hit you right there. Let that hit you. 
Maybe, maybe that's going to hit you a little bit later. What, no, for real. What if we treated our Bibles the way we treated our cell phones? Carried it everywhere we went. Turn back to get it if we forgot it. Hello, somebody. Checked it for messages throughout the day. What's God's text messages saying? Before you check your text message, you're, te- you're checking God's text message. I wish I had time. Before you get onto Facebook, you're getting into his face and in his book. I, I wish I had time. What if we use it in emergency situations? Or spend an hour or two using it each day? Imagine that. What if we consulted the Bible instead of our phone, right? The next time you wanted to coordinate the meeting, oh God, you are my God, early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. (laughs) Next time we needed to solve a problem, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it generously to all without finding fault. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. Or the next time you needed direction, acknowledge the Lord in all his ways and he will make your path straight. Or the next time you decide what you need to do or what you shouldn't do. How blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the mockers, Psalm 1-1. Or the next time you need to help to settle an argument, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him. Or repay evil to no one, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Imagine if we just picked up the word of God the same way that we picked up our cell phone to help us address life issues. This church will be impacted drastically in a great way, right? Because everybody is in the word of God daily the same way that they're in the word, their cell phones. So the next time you find a direct path for your destination, or the next time you have an emergency, you're always consulting God's words because you realize, I just can't live without it. Even, and I'm wrapping up now because it's already hot and I know everybody's ready to go home. Even the blind or deaf need words. We all need words. We all need words to communicate. So we take the audible form of the, a word and we translate it in a, into a series of raised dots on a piece of paper so that our words can reach the blind. For the deaf, we have taken words and translated them into a series of hand motions. I don't really know how to do all that, but my, my daughter is actually learning sign language. We do that to actually reach those who are deaf. As important as words are among us, they take on a whole new level of importance when it comes to our relationship with God. That's why God (laughs) took the most important message any of us will ever experience or receive and perfectly translate it into human flesh. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Thus, when the beginning began, the Word already was. The Word was not a part of the beginning. 
It was prior to the beginning. He was prior to the beginning. I'm sorry. He was eternally antecedent to the beginning. The Word didn't begin with the beginning. The Word was Himself the beginning of the beginning. (laughs) The Word was not made. The Word simply was. The Word was not started. He was the starter. He did not commence to be or was not shaped or fashioned or formed. The Word wasn't produced or packaged. The Word wasn't constructed or created. The Word simply is eternal. The Word, (laughs) unmade, unbegun, uncreated. The Word is ageless. The Word is Jesus. The living Word of God. Jesus is final, God's final word to us. He comes to us not packaged in letters, but in a person. The Hebrew writer says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. It is clear from this passage and several others that every single atom is being held together by the power of Christ's spoken word. Everything was created by him. Everything is held together by him. Everything was created for him, and everything is headed back toward him. Hello, somebody. And as I hasten, let me ask you a question. What is your fixed point in life? God's word is that fixed point for our souls. Its truths are fixed forever. Oh, Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 89. Thus, it gives us a safe and accurate reference point for our lives. A person who rejects God's word as a source of truth may feel like they are headed the right direction. They feel like they're going straight. But inevitably, they're going astray because of what's inside them. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man. (laughs) They're going straight. But the end thereof is death. Amazingly, though, Jesus didn't point people to a fixed point. He claimed to be the fixed point. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto God the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power and presence of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that these words will take deep root into the hearts of your people, Lord, us, that we may be fruitful and effective disciples of Christ. We thank you and praise you, Lord God, for your kindness, and we ask all of these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Let's give God some glory. Amen. He's worthy.